If you're looking to sell your private company stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. With more than $4 billion in company-approved transactions, SharesPost is the leading marketplace for private company shares. To learn more, visit us at sharespost.com slash equity. Hello, and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast. I'm back this week with Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief, Alex Wilhelm. Hey, Alex, how's it going? Uh, things are good. It's cold out on the East Coast, but I'm uh, more excited to hear about things on your end because you are in the new uh, TechCrunch podcast studio. What is it like? Yeah, so TechCrunch moved into our brand new offices this week. We're in a much larger office that's connected to some other Yahoo businesses. Our new studio is um, kind of in shambles at the moment, and we're sort of figuring out what we need and how we're going to you know, sort of build a new home within this uh, new space, but it is nice and warm in here. I'm not happy about that. Yeah. Also, the old podcast space was in like the back of the TechCrunch office, like buried back in the old studio. So I'm kind of hoping for some more light and maybe just it not being so back of a cave. Uh, you, it is much more like a cave than before. Okay. So you're, there are no, there's no windows. Yeah, you're going to be disappointed. <laughs> the equity is going to get sadder as a podcast now because we're just going to be like totally covered in gray and lack of light. Um. But anyways, before we get totally off topic, there has been drama on the Twitter and everyone's uh, – well, everyone knows Paul Graham, a very well-known part of the Y Combinator universe, Kate. And he did a tweet today, as we say, that picked up a lot of commentary from ourselves and a lot of other media people. We wanted to kind of just riff on it for a second. So, Kate, why don't you tell us um, how this kind of kicked off? Yeah. So let me just read the tweet word for word so everyone can sort of develop their own opinion. But he said – When a startup is small, it seems cute, and the press writes encouragingly about it. When it reaches the size where they can get attention by attacking it, they do that instead. So in Paul Graham's tweet, which, like Alex said, kind of went viral on VC Tech Twitter today, he's sort of insinuating that um, journalists sensationalize uh, startup founders' activity or behavior in order to get clicks without real justification to do so. There were a lot of really great responses, I thought, from the journalist community basically being like, "Um, yeah, you're absolutely wrong and you don't understand what the purpose of our jobs is if you're going to say something like that. One of the responses was from the New York Times reporter Erin Griffith, and she said, maybe it's because those startups go from having no power to having a lot of it, and what they choose to do with that power should be scrutinized. And I personally agree. Um, exactly. Yeah, I personally agree with that 100%. Definitely our jobs to draw attention attention and to scrutinize when appropriate. Companies, when they've raised millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, and they have much more power than when they were some fledgling seed stage startup. Yeah, when they're that small, they have no power whatsoever. All they have is potential and a dream. And that's why they're fun to write about when they're small, because they're these kind of orthogonal bets against kind of where the market is today. Uh, And then later on, when they've scaled up and the revenue hits nine figures, and they may have a user base in the hundreds of millions, all of a sudden they are the establishment. And to expect them to be treated the same is ridiculous. Uh, It it makes no sense at all. Treating Facebook the same as we did when it was a couple of nerds in a dorm room versus now when it has 2 billion plus people on its platform is silly. The impacts are larger. The responsibility is higher. I mean, literally, this is a quote from Spider-Man, you know, with great power, etc. So I don't, I mean, it's amazing that we have to keep relitigating this, but somehow Paul Graham thinks that everyone's being very mean uh, to his rich friends. And I just find it ridiculous. Right. Yeah, I know. And, you know, after reading Paul Graham's tweet, I thought for a moment about the way that I cover early stage startups versus larger ones. And of course, when I'm covering a startup, like a true brand new company that's maybe a year or two old, still in the process of building its first product, of course, I approach it differently because it's, it's like you said, it's more of an 
it's founders who are inspired by an idea. They're excited. They don't have a lot to show for themselves and therefore they don't have a lot of control or power. Right. And it's not the same questions you might ask a much larger company just aren't going to come up in the same way. Yeah. And so as a company scales, it's treated differently. It's just like eventually you go public and you do quarterly earnings reports. It's just part of being a larger company with more influence and more power. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think there's this perspective out there that the media exists and wins in its own view when it tears people down. But that's just not true. I mean, a lot of the business media, which is a generic term for like the startup and money world, Kate, that you and I write in, is yeah. ridiculously positive to the point it's almost – you know, vomit inducing. And so to me, we actually, as a group are too positive and we cover too much, the nice stuff like, Oh, they raised some money and we don't do enough digging into the failures and the frauds and, and whatnot. So in, in my view, actually, Paul Graham is not even close to right. You know, I think we should be more negative on a chronic basis. And I, I think there's room for that as opposed to more room for niceness uh, towards people that have both money and power. I agree. So you also had a good response to Paul Graham's tweet. And what happened after you tweeted that? Yeah. So, I mean, Paul blocked me, which is not, not <laughs> a huge surprise. It, it really, I'm it kind happens. of surprised that it, he hadn't blocked me before because I've made, I think, mood comments about his uh, tweets in the past. But yeah, so now I'm blocked. So the next time Paul Graham tweets something, Kate, you will have to, uh, I don't know, take a picture of it and text it to me or something because uh, I'm no yeah. longer allowed to uh, to view Paul's tweets. I've only met Paul Graham once, um, so it's not like he and I were particularly close. I'm not going to cry over this. It's it's fine, you know. Yeah, it's not it's not worth crying over. I agree. I This is just one of those things that like, this sounds like inside baseball, everyone, but like, here's why this matters. Paul Graham is an extremely influential person. And a lot of people really look up to what he says, his essays, mm -hmm. his thoughts, his impact in, in what I see in kind of the broader world of early stage companies. And so when he says something, people listen and internalize it. He is an influencer in the old school sense, if that makes sense. And so when he says right. these things, the reason why the people in the media like, Aaron Griffith and myself and Kate and I think Alex Conrad from uh, Forbes was in there yes. too and I presume people from Fortune and other people from TC and everyone kind of notes this is it's not right and so when someone that's influential is wrong so publicly it's it's frustrating and especially when they essentially treat the media as uh, a single entity uh, that's malicious and is uh, I don't know always sensationalistic yeah. in the negative sense. Yes, I think it. Um, I think it's worrisome because it gives you an idea of how he thinks about the tech media and how he thinks about our role in covering startups and larger businesses. And I also, you know, I think it's important, like you said, you're you're, you're kind of trying to explain why why this matters for for Paul to have blocked you. And 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 my my assumption is he also blocked the other journalists who were critical of him. I mean, damn, like for someone that much power to to be that opposed to any kind of criticism on Twitter, which is sort of an open forum to have these kind of discussions, I think is a little bit um, disconcerting as well. Hey everyone, don't forget this episode is brought to you by Shares Post. But I wanna move on. This was just mm -hmm. one thing that happened today. There are big bits of news out there. Kate, uh, one of which was something that I was very excited about, which is Uber's very first earnings report as a public company. Yeah, so let's see. It's been about three weeks now since Uber went public. We all know how that went. It didn't go so well. Um, it's been about it's been about three weeks as well since Lyft posted their first earnings report since becoming public. Today it was Uber's turn. So um, everything came out as expected, which is kind of a nice change for Uber because I feel like they've become known as a company that's full of surprises, especially after that disastrous IPO. Um, so Uber posted losses of $1 billion on revenue of $3.1 billion for the first quarter of 2019. Gross bookings in that time period rose 34% from the same time period last year to $14.6 billion. 
And both Uber Eats and some of their other bets like Uber Freight and mobility, um, micro mobility, that is, continue to show a lot of growth. What did you think of the earnings report, Alex? So a, a lot of thoughts. Um, the growth that the company put up was essentially uh, 20% year over year. And that's from the kind of the top line number that Kate just cited, which was mm-hmm. $3.1 billion. If you drill down a notch into what they call adjusted net revenue, which is them putting up a more conservative revenue metric, the revenue only grew 14% year over year, which is not much, frankly, for a company that's been kind of dubbed a growth machine and valued as such throughout its life. Um, another, just a couple of points, like so their adjusted EBITDA, which is a very massaged profit metric that is uh, less strict than uh, gap operating income or, or you know gap net income. Uh, grew, sorry, well, got worse. I mean, sorry, from negative 280 million in the year ago quarter to negative 869 million uh, in this most recent quarter. So not only did their, you know, loss of operations double, their adjusted EBITDA, you know, more than, uh, effectively tripled, more than tripled, which is not good. Uh, and then I think they had cash burn in the quarter on an operating basis of like 700 and some million. And it, it, a lot of this just doesn't feel good to me. And so I was kind of expecting the stock to take a ding. But as we record, it's currently up 2%. So I I, yeah. I don't know what to make of that. I mean, Kate, it's not growing. Mm-hmm. It's losing more money. And it, it's worth more money than it was before. Can you square that in your head at all? No, I can't. But I was, you know, I was doing some reading as I was working on uh, my my story on the earnings report. And, and some of the, the analyst reports I was looking at were basically like, well, you know, Uber's been performing so badly, they essentially were like, we think that it has to go up at this point, like it has to start accumulating value. So honestly, I do know, I truly think that people are at this point, just like, well, there's only one way to go and it's up. And so that's kind of how I'm not justifying, but sort of attempting to understand why the stock's rising. The thing is, though, I just feel like when it comes to stock performance, like in the hours or the day, even after earnings reports, I feel like it's always it's just bizarre. And it always seems meaningless to me because I'm always trying to understand why is stock going up when that company failed to meet estimates? Or why is it going down when the company outperformed estimates? And that happens all the time. And I just I still haven't really wrapped my head around why that is. I think it's usually there's something else going on. So like uh, there's the way that I do this, this may be too much inside baseball for people who don't read earnings reports, but usually there is a kind of a high level revenue metric that's expected. And then there is a kind of an EPS metric, which is usually adjusted in tech. And then there's kind of the forecasts. And I think that's what people often don't read. Maybe I'm sure you do, but like some people don't. And then they just look at the single quarter's performance compared to expectations and then expect the stock to move based on that. But in a lot of companies' cases, like, I think Zora today, um, they had, I think, some growth problems down the road and that really dinged their share price. So I think there's just kind of a, a pantheon of, of possibilities about what can cause issues or, or benefits. Um, but in this case, you're right. Uber's expectations were low. They had set you know, in their last S1A these figures out and they came kind of in the middle of revenue and loss expectations. So I think the phrase is priced in and that's an odd place to be. Yeah, I mean, it's good that they came in on, ex- on expectations. Like Lyft, you remember, um, had losses that were way, way, way higher than expected. But I would just say bottom line is, you know, none of these companies, um, you know, particularly I'm thinking of like Uber, Pinterest and Lyft, um, which are just recent unicorns to have gone public that are not enterprise software businesses, is that they're not profitable and they're not really showing clear paths to profitability yet. So it's just a little bit like, eh, well, um, not looking so hot. Yeah. I mean, so just just a little bit more about this because I know people aren't going to go read the earnings report because it's boring. But if you dig into it, gross bookings rose 34% year over year, right? But adjusted net rev only grew 14%, which means that of that new gross bookings, Uber's take rate probably went down a little bit, which implies that probably Uber Eats grew a lot. 
and Uber's, you know, percent cut of that revenue is smaller. So the, the gross bookings growth looks great, but it doesn't translate. And if you look at uh, the company's um, cost of revenue exclusive of depreciation and amortization in the year ago quarter, uh, it was like 44.7% according to my math. And then in this most recent quarter, that had risen to 54%. So the revenue quality went down in a sense because of, I presume, a rising uh, percentage of gross bookings from Uber Eats. And you know th- these are just not things you expect to see in a company that's that's going to crush it, and so I, I I don't know how it's valued, but you know what, Kate, this is why I'm not an investor, and all my money is in index funds. So, good luck, uh, good luck, everyone, with that. All right, but putting Uber aside and going back to our kind of main fare, if you will, the private markets, let's talk about SoFi. Uh, Kate, social finance has been a unicorn for forever, I feel, and they raised a fresh five hundred million dollars plus. Uh, this week, which took me a little bit by surprise. Had this been on your radar uh, before it was announced? No, definitely not. And I think the reason, and you'll get to this, of course, is because of the investor. When it's an investor like this, I think we have a lot harder of time in you know hearing VCs gossip about it on the streets of San Francisco. Or just in our DMs. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I, well, VCs can be chatty. You know, they like to share. Oh, VCs love to gossip. Are you kidding? Like, I think they like to gossip more than anyone in any other profession. I Yeah, that's probably right. Um, anyway, so it was the Qatari Investment Authority, which apparently has been eyeing uh, SoFi since 2017, led the round. And uh, there's just a lot of weird stuff with this one. Um, okay, so Dan Premack over at Axios pointed out that it's a down round. Uh, quote, not only from the Series G infusion in 2017, but also from the Series F round in 2015. I couldn't independently fact check that, uh, but this is based on a uh, hmm. Delaware stock authorization filing that was uncovered by the quote, Prime Unicorn Index. What is the latest valuation? It was, oh gosh, it was $4.3 billion pre-money. I'd bet you $1 that my memory is correct there. So just over $4.8 billion post. That's exactly what I'm seeing. And, and not to, um, and just to fact check, Premac that that actually doesn't doesn't seem right based off the data I'm looking at. So that's interesting that he said that. I wonder um, yeah, where he's getting that. I thought the series, yeah, I thought the series G was three point eight plus five hundred, so four point three. Right. So to me, it looked exactly like a step function. Right. So, anyways, that's what. But Dan, to his credit, smart man. That's so. Fair. I'm, I'm somewhere in there is the truth. Uh, we'll nail it down and put it into a story. Uh, sorry about that. But it, it's, weird, it's weird because SoFi had $1.7 billion in cash on its books. So it didn't need this money, but it took it on anyways. Um, so now it has about $2.3 billion in cash. And uh, Anthony Noto, the uh, former Twitter CRO and COO, uh, or maybe CFO, one of the two, uh, tweeted out they had like $2.3 billion of that left over. So they had a bunch of money. Uh, They haven't spent a lot of the money they've raised, and they raised a bunch more. And why is a good question. Um, They now have you know more money than than God, but uh, they do have one particular plan for some of the money that was stretched. So, Kate, can you explain to me why the LA Rams are part of our show this week? Yeah. So interestingly, um, SoFi announced that they were going to buy the naming rights to the LA. Stadium. I already forget the name of the team. Alex, do you remember the name of the team? The Rams. You just said it, didn't you? I did. <laughs> yep, I instantly forgot. Well, so, <laughs> so they, sports are <laughs> sports aren't. Yeah, I don't. I I don't follow sports closely, as is probably obvious. But um, yeah. So SoFi uh basically raised a bunch of money and turned around and instantly purchased naming rights to a stadium. Um, to me, that looks like they they uh, took that Qatari money and were like, why don't we just use it to buy a stadium? So I'm kind of wondering, uh. 
I mean, given what they do, I understand why they want that kind of, um, you know, widely seen consumer branding. It's kind of like how Brex pays for all those billboards. Like people have to know who they are and what they're doing. So, okay, sure. But I thought it was pretty funny. And there was a lot of commentary about like, oh, damn, like their investors are probably pissed at, at, at them using that much money to do that. So it's a, if I recall my notes correctly, it's a 20 year deal at 20 million per year. So it's 400 million. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so maybe the Rams will still be good in the future. Uh, for the non-sports fans, the Rams were pretty good last year, uh, better than my poor Eagles. Uh, and that was a bummer, but you know, when you are the naming or title sponsor of a, of a stadium, they say it a lot. You get a lot of ad stuff for that. And if you want to build consumer mindshare, maybe it's a smart way to go about it, but it, it does feel a little bit odd to raise 500 you didn't need and then promise away 400 of that to a stadium naming rights. Um, it feels bubbly to me, Kate. I'm sorry. Just like uh, it feels ex- 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 um, extravagant. That's the word I couldn't yeah. find. Right. I mean, I, of course, I feel the same way. But like companies in Silicon Valley are going to raise money if it's available. And I imagine the Qatari, invest- Qatari Investment Fund, you know, was anxious to to invest in SoFi and was like, you know, just readily available with that cash. So sort of one of those things where why say no to the money? Why not just put it in the bank and be smart and skill intelligently? I'm not saying that SoFi will do that. I don't really know um, what their leadership's like and how they might use that kind of money. But, you know, the Brex, which we're going to talk about soon, also is raising a whole bunch more money despite having or claiming to have a bunch of money in the bank already. It's it's a hilarious period of time in which we live when startups can accidentally have over a billion in cash um, before they go yeah. public. Like it's just it's weird. Uh, but I want to throw in one quick note about the Qatari Investment Authority. So if you don't know Qatar, uh, the country, uh, it's a theocratic monarchy um, that has a history of kind of like poor treatment of like foreign workers, and it's all very Googleable. And you know, it's it's another example of money that isn't. I don't know what the right word here is, Kate, uh, squeaky clean, uh, going into tech companies in large blocks. And this actually was also in the news thanks to WeWork, uh, Kate, because I think Adam Newman, what the hell did he say? He said something about he's going to stop taking Saudi money now. Yeah. So WeWork's um, Adam Newman actually said, quote, global companies need to start taking a stand on what's right and wrong, not just for the sake of paying less taxes or getting in favor with the government of the country they want to enter, actually for the sake of humanity. And then he went on to say that, you know, he was going to be a lot more thoughtful about where he took money from. But like you um, just mentioned, uh, he's already accepted hundreds of millions um, from, you know, and like you said, not squeaky clean money. And a lot of people just straight up call it dirty money. You know, that might be um, extreme depending on where it's coming from. But yeah, I mean, he, Newman has already taken a lot of this money. So yeah. for him to turn around and say that now, I would say is a little too late. Yeah, it's like after robbing 35 banks, that's it. We shouldn't rob banks. It's bad. Don't do it. Put the guns down. Like, I mean, come on, you know? Anyways, it appears that uh, technology companies have yet to find their moral backbone on this as uh, the money keeps flowing. Um, But let's move to another big round. Brex is in the process of raising a lot of money right now at at a shiny new valuation. Kate, what is the latest? Yeah, so it's always funny when we start hearing um, you know, pretty early on that a company is, quote, fundraising, because you don't know if that means they spoke to one investor, if they have commitments from 15 investors, you just you don't really know. And this is kind of the case for Brex. So Brex is absolutely definitely fundraising. I have confirmed that with sources. I don't know the amount, but my guess is somewhere between 102 million or sorry, 100 million and 200 million. You know, Bloomberg is saying it's at a valuation of around 2 billion. And from, you know, I talked to a source who is considering investing and they said, um, 
that they actually had heard several numbers and that nothing really had been nailed down. So I think we need to wait and see okay. on that. Um, Brex's last valuation is 1.1 billion. So, you know, we are looking at like them potentially doubling that. Um, that does not surprise me given the fact that Brex has seen extremely rapid growth. Brex is only two years old. We've talked about this a lot. They graduated from Y Combinator in the winter about two years ago. They released their first product less than a year ago, which was a corporate card for startups. You know, in the last few months, they've been working really hard to put all the money they've raised to work by like they lo- releasing their second product, which is this, um, an e-commerce card or a card for an e-commerce startup specifically. And I think, you know, we're going to see a lot more from them in the next year and then, you know, for years to come. But um, yeah, so at this point, we don't know a ton. We don't have the details. The only really big detail that we do have confirmed is that Kleiner Perkins is leading the round via um, a former general partner there, Mood Rogani. Am I pronouncing that right, Alex? That's a th- that's correct to my understanding. Okay. Yeah. So he's leading the round. Um, he's no longer at Kleiner. He's actually now at Bond, which is the vun- the venture capital fund that Mary Meeker launched. Um, you know, she just closed their debut fund on $1.25 billion, uh, maybe like, I don't know, a month ago? Super tight, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so the reason that Mood is investing via Kleiner is because Mood, Mary Meeker, and Noah, and a couple, I think uh, maybe one or two others that were at Kleiner were responsible for this fund they had at Kleiner. So when they left, you know, they they were still general partners in that fund. So they were still responsible for actually deploying that capital. So we're seeing that happen now. And that's why we're seeing people who are a bond actually invest like they're at Kleiner still. Okay. So that was my point of confusion between us because I thought the last uh, Mary Meeker team investment out of the KP portfolio had already been announced. And so when I saw that, I got twisted. But the way you explain it makes sense to me. Um, Yeah, it's kind of difficult to explain. So I'm sorry if I'm not doing a good job. But like I said, they were responsible for investing it. They've, um, you know, some someone close to that uh, group has told me that they are done investing, but they haven't completed announcements. That's why it seems like they're still actively writing checks. But as far as I know, they are done. And actually, one interesting thing I learned in my reporting of just this Brex deal is that just based off whatever may be contractual obligations of some kind, Bond is actually not allowed to participate in the rounds that Kleiner is investing in out of this, um, yeah, out of that fund that they had, the digital growth fund that Meeker was kind of, you know, responsible for. Uh, Bond actually can't. So I think that's kind of an interesting little uh, footnote. Uh, I'm not surprised. You probably can't play that on both both teams, if you will. But can we go back a second, Kate, and talk about how fast Brex is growing? Because I know they're growing quickly from a capital in and valuation perspective, but I have not heard yet from anyone any notes about revenue scale, revenue growth. You know, these are things that are, that have yet to percolate into my hearing. And to be clear, I live half time in Providence, which is not Silicon Valley, uh, so I could be missing some things. But have you heard any notes about actual? revenue or revenue growth or anything along those lines as it pertains to Brex? Um, you know, I haven't heard a lot. Um, so the CEO, you know, he told me that they do have a lot of money in the bank, so they're being really cautious about their spending. And then I think you may have told me this, but the, Brex is pretty open about how much money they've saved startups. And there are some people who have like managed to back calculate that in a way that somehow kind of exposes how many customers they have. I don't know. And then I so there are people who have tried to discover how Brex is doing, but this is why it's it's com- complicated when a when a two year old startup is already raising a Series D because at that point, <laughs> yeah, I know when you're at that point, you kind of expect them maybe to, to share some figures like you mentioned, revenue growth, customers, something. But if 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 this were a two year old startup raising a Series A, which is extremely normal. Um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have those same expectations. So you're kind of left in this odd middle ground where you're like, okay, well, if you're really this late stage, then tell us 
tell us more. Tell us why you're raising at this valuation. Like, how could you be worth two billion dollars? I, I would love, I would love to see to get a look at uh, Brex's books. Yeah, and then kind of one last thing. And then we're a little bit running a little bit late, so I'm gonna jump to our last topic really quick. But I think in your TC article about this, you mentioned how they've been brilliant. Brex has been brilliant about. Uh, getting into kind of the YC world, quickly getting everyone signed up, driving a lot of uh, growth for itself that way. That trick doesn't duplicate. You know, if you move into e-commerce, you start from zero. You know, you don't have that built-in native advantage that lets you scale very quickly mm-hmm. and all that. So I- I'm curious if the same sort of like network effects of, of people referring each other to Brex uh, in different startups and so forth will be replicable uh, in other verticals and if growth will be yeah. as torrid as we kind of presume it is given these external um, signals like evaluation that we're seeing. So, yeah, I think um, I do think it's going to be a lot more difficult when Brex moves into things like the fortune 500 sector, which they've said on the record that that is their plan. Mm -hmm. Um, Like you were just referencing, I had said in my story that, you know, Brex has been really successful because it tapped into a space that there just weren't existing solutions. So it's, it's worked really well for them. And then like you mentioned as well, uh, tapping into the YC network of customers has benefited them so much because like, yes, they're a YC grad. So they instantly had that network. They've been able to sell to so many YC graduates. There are hundreds of startups within that network. And then those startups tell their other friends and those entrepreneurs tell their friends. And it's kind of this ripple effect that has also worked really well for companies like Stripe and Atrium, which is a kind of like a digital law firm for companies, uh, startups, Gusto, Triple Byte. Like it's, it's this new trend in which these these companies are sort of like tapping into that YC network and really, really benefiting from it. But yeah, I don't know how Brex will scale because like you said, that's not something that's going to work in every single new product that they come out with. Yeah. And to be clear, this is not a knock against Brex. Like it, it, every right, Y Combinator right. company leverages the Y Combinator family and network to grow and get their first customers. It's fine. It's totally okay. Uh, but the question is how fast can mm-hmm. they replicate this in other places? Anyways, uh, Kate, um, I promise I'd be really brief about this, so let's see how fast I can do it. But CrowdStrike filed an S1A uh, since our last episode, and they are going to sell 18 million shares at 19 to $23 per share on a non-diluted basis. That's a valuation between $3.7 and $4.5 billion. And I believe they had a $3.0 billion valuation at the end of 2018. Um, they essentially doubled their revenue, uh, according to their expectations for the most recent quarter, they put out ranges and their operating loss fell in the same period compared to the year ago quarter. So essentially they have falling operating losses, doubling rev, give or take, and they also posted rising SaaS efficiency. So on the whole, the CrowdStrike offering looks like it's going to take off and, uh, we will have more notes about that, um, when we get a final price and a first day's trading. Uh, but Kate, I think that wraps us up. I think that sums it all up. So uh, thanks for joining me again, and I'll see you next week, Alex. All right. See you in the studio. Bye. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and a big thank you to our producer, Christopher Gates, our executive producer, Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week. Bye.